This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. I want to begin today, and for the rest of our time together as a church, I want to begin today by reading a very important email that I sent to you Friday. And I'm sorry to read it again because I know all of you have already been reading it over and over and over again. You've probably read it three or four times, been using it devotionally since Friday, haven't you? When I send emails to you like this, I really do hope you'll read them. If you don't get these emails from us, um, check with Pastor Clint or Pastor Leela, one of our pastors. Let them know that maybe we don't have your information. But this was a biggie. And it was big enough that I want to read it, and may it be the foundation of what I want to say over the next three weeks and from here forward. As Grace Point moves in earnest into our second decade as a congregation, the sense that our identity, our vision, and our mission are coming into full and mature shape is palpable. Truly, our first 11 years together have been a blessed experience serving the journey of hundreds and hundreds of people. To that end, the leaders of our church, our board, our staff, our elders, our deacons, the leaders of our church feel deeply grateful that God has obviously and graciously mixed all of our steps and missteps into a good that could only be described as divinely fashioned. As I contemplate with these same leaders the present hour of our church, as well as the future of the same. I'm reminded of a story from the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. The children of Israel had come to the end of their famed 40-year journey or wandering in the wilderness, and they sensed that a change was coming. They sensed that their ultimate calling or destiny was on the verge of unfolding, and they were right. Deuteronomy's second chapter tells the story I want you to look at that with me, just the first seven verses. Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 through 7. In retrospect, Moses cast those 38 years into just a few verses. After crossing the Red Sea, delivered miraculously by God, he said, then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea in the opposite direction of the promised land that we long for, as the Lord had told me. And for many days, we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. I want you to notice something there. He did not say you've been traveling around this mountain country too long. He didn't say you've been traveling around this mountain country not quite long enough. In giving new direction, he cast no aspersion on the past. He affirmed the past and said, you've been traveling around this mountain country just about right. All the way, Fanny Crosby, my favorite hymnist, said, all the way, my Savior leads me. You've traveled around this mountain country long enough. And these words I've conscripted for the next few weeks. Turn northward. I use the old King James language, the authorized version that I grew up on. Turn ye northward. 
turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau. To that end, may we remind, remind ourselves as people of Jacob, people of Israel, that Esau is our brother. There is a grand graciousness to the biblical text. It tells our story of separation and actualization and sometimes our story of separation and actualization makes us feel that everybody we separated from who took a different journey, if we are blessed, they must be cursed. But that's not the story here. Preceding even Jacob and Esau is their father Isaac. And in that story, there is another boy named Ishmael. And we have a grand tendency as people of Isaac to say ours is the only story and there is no other story. It is blessing or curse. And yet God reminds us that he tended to the needs of Ishmael and promised him he would make of him a great nation. Our story does not have to disparage the story of others. In order for you to be a winner with God, there does not have to be losers. And we are not simply admonished here that the other sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, are brothers but God reminds his people as they head back into Palestine that one that they had long since separated from was still their brother. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And pause here for a moment. They will be afraid of you. I want to say in the history of Israel and in the history of of what we call spiritual Israel, the church. In the history of the movement of those directed by God, any time, and we will come back to this, any time there is a turn northward movement, you will go through the territory of your kindred. And there is a great potential that they will be afraid of you. In the history of the Christian church, every time the clarion call turn northward rings out the entire group doesn't hear it but there are always Saul's Paul's there are always Augustine's and Anselm's and Aquinas's and Tyndale's and Wycliffe's and Luther's and Zwingli's and Wilberforce's and kings. There are always those particularly called that hear something inside of them before the host does turn northward. And the journey to the promised land will always take you through the land of your brothers and sisters. And I just want you to know that there is the great potential that they will be afraid of you. They will be afraid of you. They might even contend with you. They might even make war with you. They may not be kind to you. This is not the language of how to treat enemies. This is the language of how to deal with brothers and sisters who don't understand. 
It was Martin Luther King Jr.'s greatest pain. He himself chronicled that his greatest pain came not from the white man, but from his African-American brothers and sisters who counted him a sellout. Those that he loved dearest that did not understand his call. When any movement turns northward, you will go through the land of your kindred and they will be afraid of you. And they might even make war with you, but notice the admonition. Do not, and the word there is supposed to be contend, do not contend with them. Some translations say don't make war with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of a foot to tread on because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You see that other group of people, I have my deal with them too. And it has nothing to do with your deal. And just because you have a deal doesn't mean they don't have a deal. You can project that as far as you want to project it. I'm just talking scripture here. And you might think what I mean by that, but don't think what I mean by that. Let Scripture speak to you. It at least means what it means here in this text. Don't make war with them. Don't contend with them. James said, from whence come wars? Well, they come from those people that launch missiles at us. No, he said, come they not of your own members? Because a war is never a war until there's a response. Pearl Harbor did not constitute a war for us. Our response did. And I'm not saying it was unfounded. Simply using a physical example. Wars are based upon a response. From whence come wars? They come from inside. God said when you turn northward to go to your destiny, some of your brothers and sisters will not understand. They will be afraid of you. They might even make war with you. But have none of it. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. You shall purchase food from them with money. Don't act like their food's poison. You shall buy water from them with money. Don't, they're not going to give it to you. It's going to cost money. But don't act like you're too good for it. Don't be the people who can only have Jacob's diet and can't have Esau's. No, he said, you spend the money. If, if their hearts were right, they'd give it to you. But they're not. But that doesn't have anything to do with you. You can eat their food and drink their water. It won't hurt you. You can read their books and listen to their messages. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. It is so easy to translate turn ye northward into everything has been wasted heretofore. Our testimonies are that until that moment our lives had been wasted and fruitless and we were wandering and lost and God wasn't with us, but even a young Stan Mitchell knew that he was with us, Gary S. Paxton said all the time, romancing, never molesting, always calling and wooing, and final ultimate decisions of faith are just one piece in a long process that you may not even have been aware of, but God's been courting you all along. Turn northward often comes with, well, 
sorry it's taken so long, so God, but God says, no, no, not so fast because I'm utilitarian and economic and I never, Lisa, waste anything. All those days you don't want to talk about, all those parts of your life that you feel like you just twittered away that which was good. No, God said, I want to talk to you about that. I've been with you and I've blessed the work of your hands. I have known you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. And turn ye northward doesn't mean all is lost before. Through those moments, Henry Nouwen said, those past pains that I disparage, that I try to remove from my memory, Finally, God comes and helps me make peace with myself, and I realize that even those horrible steps were stepping stones to this wonderful place. And I don't know how I would be here any other way. The Lord said, don't get so quick with your turn northward that you forget that I've been with you every step out here in Goshen. Back to the email. <clears throat> so... In response to this text, Deuteronomy 2, what a time for a droid to freeze up on you. I responded, there are several pieces of that story that seem remarkably resonant, consonant with Grace Point's story. Not the least of the similarities is the reassurance that God had been with them always through the highs and the lows. But of particular note to me was the clarion call of verse 3, that they had navigated the hill country long enough, and it was now time for them to turn northward. This intentional shift in their journey would turn them in the direction of God's best for them. Graciously, the serpentine route they had been on for the past four decades had in its own way been leading them to that best place, but now they were decisively making a move that would turn them down the proverbial home stretch. It was just over two years ago that the pastors and elders of our church experienced what we felt, and in retrospect, I know, deeply believe. The pastors and elders of our church just over two years ago experienced a very similar sense of being directed to make a decisive shift. Like Moses and the leaders of Israel, we felt a divine hand gently but firmly turning us in the direction of what we believe to be God's ultimate heart for Grace Point. We indeed felt our own turn northward. It is vital to note that this turning casts no aspersions on where we have been or the journey thus far. To the contrary, we have felt, as did Israel, God's affirmation of our steps from our earliest days all the way our Savior has led us. This present turning, though critical and definitive, is only a part of that guidance that we have cherished from our inception. Recently, Phyllis Tickle spoke to us regarding the fact that we are living in an epical season of history human history. And in this epical season, the Holy Spirit of God is generating significant and seismic shifts in the landscape of the Christian church. I share Phyllis's sentiments on this matter. That's why she was here. I wanted you to hear it from someone but me, besides me, 
Phyllis noted that in prior epics, the church has consistently asked three central questions. The first question is what is man or what is the ultimate nature of humans? The second question in every epical season is wherein lies ultimate authority? And the third and obvious practical outplay, the third question is how then shall we live? For the next three Sundays in a series aptly titled Turn Ye Northward, I will address those three questions as I believe they're at the heart of Grace Point's past, present, and future direction. Many of you, when leaders sense that call in a congregation, the first thing at issue is to become clear in our own hearts with what we sense God is saying. The second and perhaps more complex question is how do we then communicate that to a mass of people? To a large group of people that are a community together. Many of you have felt this turning over the past couple of years. You have not understood it. You have not known how to appropriate it. There has been gladness and there has been sadness. It certainly has had many effects within our church. I hope you'll make every effort to attend the next three Sundays as I seek to bring clarity to these exciting times at Grace Point and what it means to turn northward, to turn northward as a congregation and what the land we are headed to might look like. In the last few weeks, the elders and the pastors of this church have, after much prayer, consideration, and long conversations, we have nodded in assent in our heart and said it's time. And so thus begins a very exciting season. Today I'm going to address one of those three questions. Actually for the past four weeks I've been responding to Phyllis Tickle's time with us and I've been addressing the question that I will surmise and finish today. And that is the question in our sense of turning northward, the question wherein lies authority. We have concluded in our hearts, and we think this is consistent with the Christian church's position, both Catholic and Protestant, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal, liberal and conservative, we have concluded something that I think all of us agree on, and that is ultimate authority lies in God. And I don't say that to be a smart aleck or to be glib or to avoid the conversation, but we have to start there. We are a theistic people who believe God is involved in our lives and we believe that authority lies with that God. And in saying that, we believe that God has ideas and we believe that God is right. We believe that all of us are subjective, but we believe God is objective. And if somebody asks me, do you believe there is ultimate truth? Yes, I believe there is ultimate truth. I don't think any of you know it, but I believe God does. The second question that begs from that, is if there is a God who has all of the right ideas, if there is a God who is wise and knows best, how do we know those ideas? The third step in that process is a hopeful step as we ask the question, how do we discern the mind of God? The third step in that logical process is do we believe that God discloses and reveals or not? And we are a people 
The Christian family is a people who at our heart, we believe that God not only is, but we believe that God is a disclosing God. You remember, we believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's our definition of faith. We are not deists that think he's separate and apart. No, faith is a belief that God is and to his nature, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we believe that God discloses and reveals God's self to us. Now, the question that begs out of that, because we're still not satisfied at a practical level, and this is where Catholic, Protestant, conservative, moderate, liberal, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal, Methodist, this is where we begin to differentiate. The question then begs, how does God reveal these ideas and these thoughts? Well, I think back to some consistent belief, I think all of the Christian church on all sides believes ultimately that God has revealed God's heart through Jesus Christ. We are not saying that God had never revealed himself before, that God would not reveal God's self later or in other ways, but we believe the consummate expression of God is our Emmanuel, God with us. We resonate with Paul and the writer of Hebrews when they said that Jesus was the express image of God. We resonate with John 14. Something inside of me resonates when I hear Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. When you've seen me, you've seen God. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to the question, how does God reveal we take up that in the person of Jesus Christ, and we believe that Jesus Christ is the express image of God. God made flesh. God come in human form. Now the question practically begs, how then does Jesus reveal truth? There are many answers to that question. Some have become red-letter Christians uh, in this day, and they wear bracelets that say, I am a red-letter Christian, or even what would Jesus do? And, and I think those things are fine and good, but there are some that say that everything that God has ever wanted to reveal to us, he revealed in Jesus, and everything that we ever need to know about Jesus is revealed in the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with which I would disagree because actually I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John disagree with that. So the question begs, how does Jesus reveal truth? If we believe that God is disclosing and revealing and he does that through Jesus, how does Jesus reveal truth? And here is the short answer. And it requires some explanation, but the short answer to how does Jesus reveal truth to us, here it is. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Creator, the Holy Spirit of God. We're going to read some scripture in just a moment. We're just going to read through it that will underscore this. But let me say this. The question then begs, how does the Holy Spirit reveal truth to us? We'll get there fully. But let me say, we believe that the Holy Spirit works through multiple mediums that provide for us the Proverbs 11.14, Proverbs 24.6 model of safety and wisdom. Do you remember? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And we believe the Holy Spirit works, the Spirit of God works in the lives of people utilizing multiple tools and mediums to speak God's wisdom to us. 
we believe not limited to, but primarily the tools that we have experienced within the Christian church these first 2,000 years, we believe that God speaks through the church. We believe that the church is the living body of Christ, that God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the church now stands in Christ's stead with Christ as our head, and we believe there is a central nervous system, and we are not disjointed from that head, but all can speak or prophesy and the others can judge. We believe that God speaks through his church. When I stood up on the front row and said, not only have I mentored you, but you have mentored me, that is the truth. We believe that God speaks through scripture. We believe the Holy Spirit of God speaks through scripture. We also believe the Holy Spirit of God speaks through tradition. I've given a definition of tradition. I don't know where I got it, but it wasn't mine, but I appreciate it so much. Tradition, that word has fallen on hard times in recent years, but please hear me. Tradition is simply the accumulated wisdom of people who've loved Jesus a long time before you were alive, people who have sought God, people who have been spiritually minded, who have been laid to rest and are long centuries gone. Traditionalism may be the negative thing you're thinking of, and traditionalism is the dead ideas of living people. Tradition is the living ideas of dead people. And we believe that God speaks to us through a communion of saints that gather at the altar, both living and dead. And Anselm and Aquinas and Luther and Wesley are still a huge part of my life. We believe that God speaks through his Holy Spirit through the voice of reason. We agree with Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together. And we believe that it is a sad, sad, sad abyss that has been created between science and the church. We believe that reasonable minds are not the work of the devil, but God has given us minds and that reason can be a medium through which he speaks to his church and his people. We believe that God speaks in tandem to that through creation, and we believe that God speaks to us through personal experiences. We believe these voices, these mediums through which God speaks are never contradictory. We believe that God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. We believe that all of these voices, if we hear them properly, are saying a consistent thing. Why then the differences? My eight-year-old daughter and I turned down that little road three or four days ago, and she looked across the street, and as though for the first time she recognized there was a church across the street, she looked at me aghast and said, Dad, why are there two churches right across the street from one another? And I said, that's a good question, sis. She said, are we friends? <laughs> and I said, not only are we friends, but Pastor Mark is a good friend of mine, and we play golf together, and that church across the street has been good to us when we were building. Even now, as a smaller, younger church, they do anything we ask them to do. Clearview Baptist is a, is a remarkable group of people. She said, then why? I know what she was saying. Why don't we save space and money and just have one church? <laughs> we believe that the multiple voices that Pastor Mark and the leadership and the church over there are listening to, we believe that those voices are not contradicting the voices we hear. 
but we believe these voices have to be interpreted and understood by human beings like us. And this process of interpretation and human understanding requires human interpreters, which introduces the idea of imprecision, imperfection, and flaw. So this imperfect interpretive process that Pastor Mark and I am facilitating and leading amongst a group of people who though we love one another can't quite bring it under the same roof because there are differences enough that we have built multiple assemblies even on Franklin Road to the point that when we built ours both cities on both ends looked at one another and said that'll be the last church on Franklin Road God help us <laughs> this imperfect interpretive process is strengthened by the checks and balances of multiple voices held and heard alongside one another within a community of multiple people called the church and the conductor of this imperfect imprecise interpretive symphony of God's truth is the Holy Spirit of God or the indwelling presence of God located within us I want to simply read scripture to you now and I'm going to literally read it with you and I want you to hear our Lord as he answers the question wherein lies authority and how does God communicate God's ideas to us this is hours before his abduction betrayal and only hours before he was crucified this is seven weeks before the church that we are a part of was instituted do not let your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house there are many dwelling places if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am there you may be also and you know the way to the place where I'm going Thomas said no we don't Lord we don't know where you're going how can we know the way Jesus said to him I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me if you know me you will know my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him Philip said no we haven't Lord show us the father and we'll be satisfied Jesus said to him have I been with you all this time Philip and you still don't know me whoever has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Unity beyond preposition and space. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own. How does God reveal God's self? Wherein lies authority? I don't speak these words on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He speaks through me believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me but if you don't then believe me because of the works themselves very truly I tell you the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do 
because they will be equipped as I am equipped. And in fact, when I get done what I'm going to do, those who believe in me will do greater works than these, and it's all because I'm going to the Father, back to that place where God is universal indwelling presence of God with us. I'm going to the Father. Now, move on to the next section of this, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. You've already had an advocate. I've been your advocate in flesh, but I'm going to give you another advocate, and this one will be different than the 33-year one. This one will be with you forever. And this other advocate that's going to replace me is the spirit of truth. Wherein lies authority and how does God communicate truth? This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him because he abides with you, Emmanuel, God with us, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. I am here, but I am coming to you. That will always be your relationship with God. Very expressly here, but very truly coming to you in ways that right now you might not be ready for. I am here but I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Now look at this. You will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will know. See, he's been talking. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. But this isn't just about the unity of the Godhead. This is truly about the unity of God and humanity. On that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I'm in you. Move on. I have said these things to you while I'm still with you. Remember, with you but shall be in you, while I'm still with you. But the advocate, the other advocate, now he names him. The Holy Spirit, wherein lies authority. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything. And he will remind you of all that I've said to you because there are some things I've said to you you don't get. Anybody here ever had the experience later of saying, that's what mama was saying. That's what granddad was saying. He will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Stay with me. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, and I want to tell you, any real experience with God will always feel like God simultaneously coming and going. Deep embrace and abiding presence and baffling mystery that you can never quite fully hold. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because not only will you do greater works when I get to where I'm going, but the Father, what I've come to represent, is greater than I. This is not 
speaking of a different substance of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's simply saying that God in spirit connected to every human being on that side and on this side is better than this thing you're locked into right now where God is manifest in one body. Going to the Father who's greater than I. Chapter 15. This is my commandment, same discourse. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I... Wherein lies authority and how does God reveal... I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. Now watch. When the advocate comes, the other one, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify. Well, sure, because you're going to become the body of Christ. Paul said that stands in Christ's stead. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16. We're coming down the home stretch. But now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, any time there's a turn northward moment, there is a group inside of each of us that has loved where we've been. And any time a change is coming, not only Will there be brothers and sisters whose land you got to go through who might be afraid of you, but even in your own heart? He said, I have turned northward. But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your hearts. You like it the way it is. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, in spite of your sorrow, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I still, wherein lies authority, how does God disclose God's self? I still have many things to say to you. For everybody who's reading the Gospels thinking you're getting the whole deal. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. Listen. Were the children of Israel trying to get into the promised land and God said, no, you're not ready? Or was God trying to get them in the promised land and the children of Israel said, we're not ready? Was God waiting on the children or was the children waiting on God? Obviously, the children were not waiting on God. God was waiting on them. You remember? They came out of Egypt. He took them right up to Kadesh Barnea, said, pick 12 guys. They went over. Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can do that. And the ten said, no, we can't do that. And the ten commanded the audience of the people, and the people said, we can't do it. God said, well, I'm not going to throw you away. I'm just going to let you wander out here, and I'm going to be with you the whole way. And when your capacity is right, I'll take you back to that same spot where you were 38 years ago, and I'll say, how does it look now? And it will not in character be different but it will look different to you we're not waiting on God God's waiting on us but he's a gracious teacher 
I still have many things to say to you, and I'm an immature preacher, so I'm just going to say it whether you get it or not. Get it off my chest. No, you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, wherein lies authority and how does God communicate through Jesus? How does Jesus communicate to us? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine. How does Jesus get his message communicated? The spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, what's mine? Look at the next verse. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And after all of that, he brings the time issue into it and says a little while and you won't see me in a little while and you will see me. And the only thing they got out of that was then one of his disciples said to the other, what does he mean by saying to us a little while? <laughs> they took the entire conversation and got caught up in the time element and said, do you think he's pre-trib or post-trib? What's he mean by a little while? What's he saying here about the end times? What does he mean by saying to us a little while and you will no longer see me and again a little while and you'll see me? And because I'm going to the Father, look at the next verse. They said, what does he mean by this a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus can say a lot that we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said a little while? How long is it going to be? And you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you'll see me? I'll tell you what I really mean by that. It's not about space and time. It's bigger than that. I tell you, you will weep and mourn. What was going to happen within hours? He was about to be murdered. Folks, don't miss this. A little while and you'll weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again. I'll see you before you see me. That's good news. I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. Go back. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Finally, John 17. At the end of that discourse, that interestingly, the earlier Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not account, but a later community, the Johannan community, reflects back. They omit the Lord's Supper and they remember this passage. And they said, at the end of all of that, underscoring his words to them, he turned from them, dropped down, and began to pray. And if you really want to know how Jesus feels, listen to him pray. As he's moving from a una body of Christ to a body of Christ that builds churches across the street from one another. And a body of Christ 
that travels through one another's territory and is afraid of one another, John, and sometimes makes war when we shouldn't. Jesus knew the benefit, and he said, it's to your advantage that I go away, but I want you to know Jesus was not, he was not unaware of the challenges that would face this multiform body of Christ in the earth. And he ended the whole thing by saying, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of all those who will believe in me through their word. And here's the one thing I ask, Father, as we head into this exciting season, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe because it's not only little eight-year-old girls in our Sunday school class and in the pastor's homes that are bothered about how we're stewarding resources and how divided we are and why we build churches across the street from one another, but we love one another. Jesus said, what I'm praying, Father, is that they will be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them so that they may be one, the body of Christ, as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Finally, righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And the final thing he said, and I in them. Wherein lies authority? The last text, and give me five minutes. The last text today to the question wherein lies authority comes from this same community. It is the Johannine community reflecting even later on what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, God in us. Answering the question wherein lies authority, look at 1 John 2, an epistle. Look at it. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. That's the Holy Spirit, the way a holy God can be with us. And the Jewish mind was the advocacy of Son with Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. Where is the locus of control and authority in the church? Rome? Preachers? Books? I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you... The church was facing strong opposition that was even denying that God had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And John didn't point, the Johannine community didn't point to a preacher or a book, but it was an epical 
season and the question was ringing out, wherein lies authority? And the Johannine community said, here it is. You have received the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus said will come and teach you all things. And he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. Teachers can facilitate, they can nurture, they can corroborate, they can guide, but you don't need Stan Mitchell to be the initial teacher of what is true, John says. You don't need anyone to teach you what is true. Jesus looked at them and said, I'm going away. They said, we don't know where. He said, yes, you do. He said, you've seen the Father. They said, no, we haven't. He said, yes, you have. He said, I'm sending the spirit of truth who's with you. They said, where? He said, you know. He said, the Holy Spirit whom you've seen is coming and he'll see you again. They said, we hadn't seen. There are some things you know that you didn't know you know until you trust what Scripture's telling us. And this is Jesus answering the question, wherein lies authority? I want to tell you wherein lies authority. It lies inside of you. Because that's where God has chosen to put God's self. You have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you so you don't need anyone to teach you what is true for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know and what he teaches is true and if Stan Mitchell and Pastor Mark don't exactly agree on what he's teaching us, we don't have to say that God's confused or one's wrong and right. We will say it's an imperfect process and an imperfect body and we're going to take communion together humbly and we're going to listen until we sort this out for the Spirit is teaching us everything we need to know and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship. The Holy Spirit's in you, but you're in Christ and you know who Christ is? It's the body. So you don't do this as an island. You remain in fellowship with Christ. Now let me read you my heart. And so to take this beyond the theoretical, and this may be the most important thing that I have said in 11 years. To take this beyond the theoretical and abstract model, it would be helpful to illustrate practically what this looks like on the ground in the community of faith called the Christian church. Every significant and impactful movement in the church's history has been born of a turn you northward moment. When someone, not always the masses, seldom the majority, every turn you northward moment, every significant movement in the church's history has been when someone led by God's prompting challenges the status quo or accepted position of the church on a matter of import. Over the past couple of years at Grace Point, I have used issues contemporary to our times which have undergone radical review, radical attention, 
and ultimately transformative revision in our perspective and handling as a church. Each era would have a bevy of these to choose from, but these are those which are germane to us. Slavery, race relations, women's role in society, the home and the church, marriage and divorce, even doctrines of salvation, the role of scripture and its interpretation. I have used these not to be redundant, but to point out to you the activity of the church. This turn you northward moment comes. Every turn you northward moment comes as human capacity makes it possible. Remember, Israel wasn't waiting on God's mind to change. God was truly waiting on Israel's mentality and consciousness to be ready for the promised land, and only then would the divine prompt to turn northward go forward. Turn you northward moments in the history of the church look something like this. One, someone senses God saying, let me use women for example, Someone senses in the middle of the 19th century, someone senses God saying we are treating women unfairly. Prompted by the Holy Spirit inside of them, provoked through mediums of reason, scripture, creation, or maybe just experience. As an old friend of mine said, I don't believe in women preachers, but we sure do have some good ones. And experience came provoked by a scripture that one day jumps off the pages when you hear Paul saying, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Something burns and you say, have we never read that before? Someone senses God saying through one of these voices that we are treating women wrong. The second thing that happens is they challenge the status quo position. And any of these challengers of the status quo position, if they are led by God, do so humbly. Because to stand in the, in the face of an institution that has given life to you and to differ requires that you must believe that you could be the one wrong. And you stand humbly, but you can't let go. I was that boy, 22 years old, you saw me on the screen, raised in a church, Bevan, that said our girls couldn't cut their hair. They had to wear dresses. They couldn't wear makeup. I was the boy with the little sister who sat on the sidelines at every PE class. I was the little girl with the note. I was her brother, and I watched her. I watched her rebel. I watched her when she was so embarrassed, Jerry. She would rebel against our family, but she loved us, and she would put her pants in her purse and wad them up, and on the way to school with her lost friends, she would change, and she knew she was in rebellion, and her heart was broken, and I was that boy that down inside said, are these holiness standards really of God? And I sat around campfires and around tables and over coffee, and I spoke to my young preacher friends, and sometime if I was brave enough to the elders, and I said, hey... Are we treating women right? Our preachers look like they walk out of a GQ magazine and our women look like they walk out of a J.C. Penney catalog from the 1920s. Is this right? 
And one day sitting around a campfire at a preacher's conference, one of my mentors, a man called the prophet, walked by me and he overheard me saying those things. I'll never forget it, Rachel. He thumped me on the back of the head and said, Stan Mitchell, you keep talking that stuff and God will finally help you. He'll flip a switch in your brain. He'll turn you over to a reprobate mind and you'll believe a lie and be damned. And I remember as he walked off and the other young man said quietly, I didn't thumb my nose at him, Brian. I shook to the core of my being as I stood in the face of that institution with my thesis in hand humbly but the next virtue that the Holy Spirit will call you to when he says to turn northward is he will call you to the virtue of bravery and that's why Pastor Melissa has been saying you make me brave you not only make us humble but you bring bravery into Wesley's heart you bring bravery into Luther's heart and there is no lack of humility Luther didn't want to start a Protestant church Luther wanted to reform the church from within and he believed his own heart needed reformed but humbly you look and say, oh God, choose somebody else. Oh Lord, send somebody else. But you sit around that campfire and you realize, Lord, I'm as sincere as I know how to be and I might be wrong, but you said blessed are those who hunger and thirst and this is what I think the voice is saying. And in spite of what my elder just said to me, oh God, give me courage. I think I've heard from you. And that is not audacious or presumptuous. And through the history of the church, those voices of the Holy Spirit have rang loud and clear. And Wilberforces and kings have stood up. King even said, my greatest heartbreak was not that of the white man's blows against me. My greatest heartbreak was when I moved northward and called for nonviolence that my own brothers and sisters called me a sellout and an Uncle Tom. As I traveled through the land of my brothers, they were afraid of me and they made war with me. Therein was the pain. But in the midst of the humility, there is a voice of God saying, this isn't right. The way we're treating these people is not right. There is something about scripture that I, I'm not saying scripture's wrong. I'm saying we've got to go back and we've got to read it again. And when somebody has the humility, the sincerity, and the bravery to challenge the status quo, they will be rebutted by the institution and they will be told that the position is the long-standing position and it is obviously clear. And Luther and King will sit at their breakfast nooks and they will put their head in their hands and a young boy named Stan Mitchell knelt down every night beside his bed. And so, God, they tell me it's clear, but it doesn't seem clear. There seems to be another voice. And bravery will cause you to take that which you think is God is leading you, and you will nail it on the door of the church, no other place, because this is a church that you love. Brian McLaren will be here in four weeks. One of my favorite books is his book called A New Kind of Christianity. I love the book, but I hate the title because we do not need a new kind of Christianity. What I'm talking about is traditional Christianity. What is being espoused here is not something new. It is the tradition of Christianity established by a Jesus who stood up in the face of institutional religion and said, you have heard it said, 
key, you heard it said, but I say unto you. Then opened he their minds that they might understand the scripture and the institution said, you are destroying Moses. And he fell to his knees and said, I'm not trying to destroy Moses. I'm trying to fulfill him. What is at odds here? What is at stake here? What is being challenged here? Is not reason, experience, the church, tradition, or scripture? No. What is being challenged humbly is our interpretive ability. And what is being acknowledged is that our interpretive ability is imperfect and frail. And we are acknowledging 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, just as God knows us. What is being espoused here is not something new. It is the tradition of Christianity established by Jesus, enlivened by the apostles, and lived out in every time and place by a faithful body filled with the spirit of truth, sincere, humble, and brave, believing that God is still unfolding and unveiling his truth as we have the capacity to receive it. Wherein lies authority? It lies in us. And from time to time, God comes to the church and looks down on divorcees, looks down on women, looks down on groups of people. Presently, we're trying to sort through how God's looking at our gay brothers and sisters. That is the present crisis and struggle of the church. From time to time, these tributaries break off, and what we thought was a turn ye northward, actually time reveals was a turn you southward. You don't have to worry. Those moments will not destroy the church. They will backwash. But from time to time, these little tributaries break off, and the institutional church says, well, they'll come to nothing. But wise men like Gamaliel said, brethren, there's no need to fight them. If they're not of God, it'll fade. If they are of God, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I especially don't want to be on the wrong side of the Holy Spirit. That, brothers and sisters, is the calling of the church. And that is the church that after 30 years, I long, long, long to pastor. And it's the church that I believe Grace Point is. And I believe God is telling us, turn ye northward. You've encompassed this long enough. Come to where I've called you. Next week, we will address the question of where and who is mankind. Thank you for loving me. And even if you have to leave me, thank you for loving me. We can pass through the land of our brothers and sisters, and we can eat of the Lord's Supper, even if we have to be on opposite sides of the road. I'll see you on the golf course, if not at the communion table. Let us be good to one another as the Spirit guides us. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, and thank you for these. Thank you for those who will go with us to what we think is north. Thank you for those who cannot now go. And thank you for no arrogance on either side, for eventually with all our turnings and goings, 
one day we will all be home together. Until that time, thank you for places across the street that we can borrow baptismal robes from. Thank you for territory that we can walk through. Thank you for brothers that we can buy food from. Until that great day when we are all together in the promised land, may every person in this room follow the Holy Spirit inside of them and may they turn as God calls them. Help us, Lord, to be humble in this interpretive process and help us to be good to one another in the meantime. Thank you, Lord. You have called this church to turn northward, and so we will. We pray all of this in the name of the one who guides, Jesus. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace. And hopefully I'll see you again next week.